Hey, this is Kate Versam. I'm a grad student here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm part of an interdisciplinary group called CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and the Environment, a group of people brought together from across many disciplines who are all interested in research into the environmental past. The grad students here at CHE are putting together a symposium that is going to be this spring, and the symposium is focusing on the idea of environmental vocabularies, the words and terms we use to explain and define our research. At the center of the symposium, though, is a question that has been troubling many of us for a while. It's this word, environment. This is not only exactly the key word that brings us all together, but we've begun to wonder whether we, we might be talking past each other when we talk about environments. How useful was it, we wondered, to talk about environments? Is there a better keyword? Are there better terms? We're inviting proposals for our symposium organized around this question. But in the meantime, I called up our keynote speaker, Professor Kate Brown from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, to put this question to her. How useful is it to her in her own research to use the keyword environment? Our conversation started pretty broadly, with me asking about how she got involved with her most recent book project, a book called Plutopia, Atomic Cities, Nuclear Families, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters. It then developed towards a conversation about the key words that focused her own research. Well, I, I was struck by the comments of residents who lived in these two towns that made plutonium. One was Richland in, <clears throat> in Washington State, and the other one was Azorsk in the Russian Urals. And um, people in both these towns spoke about how much they loved growing up in these plutonium cities because they were so safe and secure. And I, that really amazed me, the idea of, of security, living next to factories that made mankind's most dangerous product. And, you know, and they, it wasn't just that, they were next to a plant that was central to the enemy's target maps for nuclear annihilation. And to me, their idea of security and living next to these places was wildly out of sync with reality. And I wondered how these really intelligent people living in these plutonium cities, how they how they were taken in by, by state rhetoric that promised them security um, when it was plainly um, would have been better if somebody was really worried about their safety to take themselves and their kids and move anywhere else. Um, so I started looking for the, that, the, that word security and in Russian as the Biesopasnas as I researched. And um, what I found was kind of amazing. It was uh, an abundance of references to safety. Um, and of course, there's sort of vague and misleading references to worker safety on the job and the safety, the generic safety of the plants. But these were usually outright exaggerations, and I expected them. But more often, I found that these guys who were in charge of building the world's first plutonium plants were really obsessed with uh, safety of children going to schools and the safety of the bus service and... Um, consumer safety and financial safety of their workers, and, and that the people living in these towns had very similar concerns. And, and that's when I really started to tune in and, and focus on this, this central idea of the book Plutopia, was that there was this, in the creation of these sort of plutonium utopias, they created a mirage of safety for the nuclear family. Did you encounter people speaking about their material environment and the landscapes they lived in in the same in the same terms 
So security for somebody who grew up in these towns meant that you never had to lock your doors, that everybody in the town had been vetted, and so therefore every, every other citizen was a good citizen, was somebody who didn't have a criminal record, somebody who was not politically suspect. Otherwise, they would have never been allowed in the town in the first place. I mean, that's a sign of how much they were under surveillance, but they turned that into a benefit, a bonus, that we all here are people who have been, who've made the grade, who've passed a security check. And that sense of um, being chosen was, was extremely important for the sense of security. But what's alluded in all this discussion of security, and that's what really amazed me, was it, it's a cover, it somehow covers um, the big question of the safety and security of these nuclear plants and of the daily intended doses of radiation that are coming from that are, that are issued as part of the daily operating order into the local streams, rivers, airstreams, ground, uh, groundwater, and soils, um, and that's being gradually ingested by the people who live near these places. These questions of safety, these really important questions of, the, of, of first people's biological safety, are almost never raised. And so what they were, they were a community of people who were like-minded, who were dedicated to the same cause, who were, had the same rhythms of daily life, who lived in the same alphabet series of housing. And, um, and that was nice. That was, that was comforting. And, and a lot of this was centered around the nuclear family. Um, and this term, nuclear family, is an interesting one to sort of explore. I haven't really gone back and tried to find the first time it was ever used, but I think it's sometime in the 1920s and 30s when there, you know, people are thinking about you know, splitting the atom. And so the nuclear family is supposed to imply you know, this, this tightly knit family that's uh, you know, dedicated to um, raising really good uh, secure and confident and creative citizens for the, a new democracy, whether it's a capitalist democracy or a socialist democracy. But if you think about the, you know, a nuclear family in the post-atomic age, that's an unsettling term at the same time. You know, it's a, 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 a neutron can come in now and split open that nuclear core. And as, as the nuclear core is split open, it releases a, a great deal of, of destructive and volatile energy. And so the family, the nuclear family, um, as opposed to the sort of pre-war extended clan, which, you know, served itself, right? It forged on its own. It raised its own kids. Um, the new nuclear family is highly dependent in a sort of new, you know, unstable, volatile world. And so this, this nuclear family, um, needs a strong defense, uh, a highly endowed welfare state, and, and cradle-to-grave benefits, unlike the extended family before, which could take care of itself in emergencies, uh, could defend itself, could forage for itself. And so you can see in this combination of, of, of a new kind of insecurity and a growing need and dependency how citizens of Plutopia became strong supporters and defenders of their polity. I mean, they really were poster children for national loyalty and patriotism. I wonder if you could sort of reflect on what this whole project makes you think about the term environment or landscape, um, and, and whether there are words that you would like to sort of add to a broader conversation to augment or 
sort of refine an environmental vocabulary where there are words you want to add or words that you would like to sort of ask us to be more precise about? Mm-hmm. I think environment is a broad encompassing word in it. And I think people don't really live in environments. I think they live in spatially bounded zones that they sort of consider they might call a community, they might call their place, they might call their town. And I think partly because, and this is what environmentalists claim about, partly because they don't see their environment as the bigger connected web of, of an ecosystem that surrounds them, but just their little place, as long as their little place is okay, then they're okay, right? So Richland was very much defined as Richland. It was defined against the neighboring communities of, um, of people who eventually, and who now call themselves downwinders, who live downwind from the plant, downstream from the plant, uh, who were not protected by the same consumer safeties. Their food wasn't shipped in from other places. Their milk wasn't checked. Their uh, ground and air was not monitored on a daily basis. So there was a sense that my place is safe. And I think that that, um, and that, I guess that's what I try to do in my work, is, is, is get historians to focus more on place and geographies and local geographies and, and their subject sense of, ge of their geographies than we often do. I mean, so many histories that one reads, certainly not environmental histories, but, but other kinds of histories, um, occur as if they're almost uh, devoid of all place, that you know, people are sort of swimming without um, local geographies around them. So there you have it. I took our question about how useful the term environment was to historian Kate Brown, and she said, in her work, she preferred to focus on other words, words like place, identity, and ecosystem. But of course, we're not really done with this question, and Kate Brown, as our keynote speaker, isn't really done helping us think it through. In the meantime, we're asking grad students from across the disciplines and from all over the region to send in proposals to the Che Grad Symposium in order to help us build what we're calling a new vocabulary for the environmental past, present, and future. What we want to know is this. In your own work, what are the key words or concepts that in your research help you give shape to the very broad concept of environment? Thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts.